That says 82 in case you're wondering. Uh, a lot of you guys here, though, home field advantage. I wasn't aware to wear a t-shirt. You guys are smart here at North Aurora. But well, good morning, everybody. Again, uh, my name is Tom Ward. I'm the high school pastor here at Chapel Street. Uh, haven't had the chance to be over here at North Aurora too often. A few times uh, had the chance to play some games on a Friday night with some of the middle school and high school kids. I don't know if you're in here or maybe out there serving. Uh, but just so excited to be able to have the chance to be with you and to worship with you. I've been talking to people in the lobby. Uh, or even during the worship. There's just an energy and an excitement that is here at this campus that is just different than any of our other campuses. And so we got have somebody's clapping. See, you got energy. It's fun. Uh, but yeah, again, just so grateful to be here. I thought I'd introduce myself a little bit just since I am kind of new here. So here's a picture of my daughter uh, coming up next. She's 16 months old. Uh, yeah, she's the cutest. She just learned how to say amen recently, so she's in there with you. I heard that at the end of the song. That's good stuff. But I've been on staff here for a while, and my wife, uh, she came to the service last night. I thought maybe she'd be here. I don't have a picture of her. But uh, this is my daughter, Raylan. We call her Ray sometimes, and uh, she's pretty cool. And she's so cool that she has some cool books, and I stole one of them to bring this morning. Uh, it's kind of a funny book somebody gave to us recently. It's called Children's Letters to God, and it's filled with with all different kinds of letters that kids have written, mostly asking different questions that they have to God or about God. So I thought it'd be kind of a fun way to start this morning by reading a few of my favorites. Uh, so are you ready? Man, you guys are energy. It's awesome. Uh, this is the first one. Uh, a little boy named Arnold writes, Dear God, did you mean for a giraffe to look like that? Or uh, did you just make an accident or something? <laughs> That was kind of funny. Uh, another letter, uh, Jennifer writes, Dear God, thank you for the baby brother, uh, but you know that I prayed for a puppy, didn't you? A <laughs> couple more in here that I thought were funny. Let me find the page. Yeah, this one uh, writes, Dear God, can you please put in another holiday between Christmas and Easter? Because there's just really nothing good in there right now. And uh, the last one I thought was especially relevant, one of the last days of January. A little boy writes, Dear God, I keep waiting for spring to come. Apparently, he's not in this room. Uh, but it hasn't come yet. Did you forget about it or something? I thought that was a kind of funny one as well. And even though these are kind of silly little questions, I don't even know how real they are or not. You may know that we're in a series right now as a church family called Questioning God. And we've been talking throughout the month of January about the fact that we all have questions and we all have doubts when it comes to our faith, even though at some points we try to maybe pretend like we don't or act as if we don't. But it's actually really healthy for us. It's really good for our faith when we confront our doubts and when we are honest with God with our questions questions, just like the kids are in the book. So that's what we've been doing throughout this series, and we've been using the book of Psalms, both as a model that teaches us how to pray, but also as a really good example for us of how it, what it really looks like to be honest in our questioning of God. And throughout the series, we've wrestled with various questions, questions like, where are you, God? What's the meaning of my life? Why do I feel so down and depressed? And why am I afraid? What am I so afraid of? But today, our question is a little bit different than the one that we've been discussing so far in this series. You see, rather than asking a question that's really more so focused on our experience of God, or maybe our lack of experience with God, the question today is, is really more geared toward our understanding of who God is, who God truly is. 
Because I think deep down, some of our deepest, some of our most honest questions that we have are really somewhat of an offshoot of an even bigger, more theological question, if you will. The question of who really is God? And what does it mean to be in his presence? So today as we conclude our series, the question that we're going to be asking directly out of Psalm 24 is who is the king of glory? So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up with me to Psalm 24. We'll read it in its, in its entirety. It'll be up here on the screens as well. And then we'll pull out a few of the main questions that we see along the way. So here's Psalm 24, a Psalm of David. He writes, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Eric, you can help me if I'm doing something wrong with this microphone. But right as we dive in here to this psalm, uh, there's really a lot going on. And we'll talk later on as we go in our time this morning about the specific event that most scholars believe David is writing this psalm about, or at least writing this psalm in response to. But like I said a minute ago, right away, I think when we read through this, there's really three significant questions that David is addressing. The first question that we see is simply, who is the king of glory? Who is the king of glory? Well, every year on our high school mission trip to Ecuador, although it has been a couple of years, but every year when we're on that trip, one of the things that we do during that trip is we take a mini little trip into the Ecuadorian jungle. It's an awesome trip. I love the chance to go there with our high school students. But with this one time, maybe three or four years ago, when we were on our Ecuador trip, uh, we decided to go to a different area in the jungle than we typically go to. It was a spot I had never been to before, and so we weren't uh, as familiar uh, with where everything was. And we were looking for a place to do our annual hike to a big jungle waterfall. And so the host of our trip, he was on the bus with me. We were kind of debating where to do the hike. He had two different rivers in mind that he thought that we could hike alongside of, either Rio Mal or Rio Loco. If you don't speak Spanish, it's either Bad River or Crazy River. So with a group of 16-year-olds, I was a little unsure. It didn't seem like there was really a great option. And I can't remember which one we chose. I think maybe Crazy River. But what I do remember is the moment we got off the bus. Right when the doors open, I'm always the first in the first seat. I get a little motion sick, so I got right off the bus right away. You could hear this waterfall. You could almost sense the, the, the presence of this waterfall, even though we couldn't even see it. It was super far away. So we made our hike down the path. We stopped along Crazy River, I think, did some baptisms, which were awesome. And then we made it all the way to the point where we could see this waterfall. 
It looks pretty cool. It's kind of hard to describe, but we were pretty far away from it, so we decided we wanted to get a little bit closer. There was a group of high school boys that were even pushing us. Let's get it even closer. The waterfall was on the other side, so there was a divide there. We were about 100 yards or so from the shore, but we got to this point, you can kind of see in the picture, where we tried to get as close as we could, but we just literally couldn't go any further. Right, The wind was so strong in our face. It was so loud. We couldn't hear each other talk. And it felt like there was like a hailstorm that was like straight in our face, just pounding us with pellets of hail. It was crazy. But you know what I didn't think in that moment? You know the thought that didn't cross my mind in that moment approaching that waterfall was, wow, I am so awesome. Right? It's, of course not. Right? It was just the opposite. I felt so small. It felt so powerless when you see something so incredible in nature. And I realized in a unique way that there's something really big, something glorious that created that. You see, Dave, David begins Psalm 24 by specifically laying out two important truths that we know about the king of glory. Let's go back and read what he writes in verses 1 and 2. He says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world, and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. You see, the first thing that we see here about this king of glory is that, the, is that everything belongs to him. David says the earth is the Lord's. And that's important, I think, for us to point out here. Really, even more specifically, important for us to realize who he's talking about. Maybe you noticed when it was on the screen or in your own personal Bible that the word Lord used here is in all caps. That's important because David is speaking specifically to God. He's using a specific name for God. You see, in the Hebrew language, there's all different kinds of words that can be translated as God or Lord. But when it's translated like we saw in Psalm 24 in all caps, that's a direct reference to Yahweh, which is the proper name for God. Maybe you remember from Exodus chapter 3 when God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush and he says, I am that I am. It's the same word that's used here, the word Yahweh. Now this would have really stood out to David's readers, even though it might be kind of a detail that sometimes is lost on us because the people reading this originally, they were living in the midst of this culture that focused a lot of their attention focused a lot of their energy on the power and the dominion of all these different sorts of pagan gods. So what David is doing here is he's specifically saying the earth is the Lord's, that everything belongs to Yahweh, to the God of Jacob, as he refers to him later on in verse 6. But he says not only does the earth belong to Yahweh, he says that everything belongs to him. David says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. See, what David is saying here is not only does the earth, not only do things like waterfalls and nature and incredible things like that, not only do they belong to Yahweh, but so does everybody who dwells within it. David's saying, so do you. And I don't know about you, but that's not typically the way that I think about my life. Right? I don't really like to admit it, but probably somewhat often in my life, I think about my life as this thing that I'm in control of. Right? It's kind of the narrative of our culture right now, isn't it? That I can be in control of who I want to be, that I'm in control of what I want truth to be, I'm in control of what I want my circumstances to be like. But then I think sometimes, 
when we live that way, and then when the sense of control kind of starts to slip through our fingers because something unforeseen happens in the world around us, I think it's really in moments like that that we begin to doubt, right? That we begin to ask questions about God. Is he really good? Is he able? Does he actually love me? But David here, he's telling us a different story. He's saying you, he's saying your life doesn't belong to yourself. You belong to God. That leads us to the second truth David lays out about the king of glory. It's that everything was created by him. Verse 2, David says, For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now, this is somewhat of a simple statement, right? Probably if you went to Sunday school as a kid, one of the first things you ever learned was that God is the creator. But I think it's really significant that David begins this psalm, this psalm that's all about the king of glory, to point out to us, right? To teach us and remind us that out of nothing, God created everything. Here's how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1. It says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, what David is saying here is that everything belongs to God, Everything was created by God, and Paul even adds in that in and through God, all things are held together, that God is in control. And you know, as much as these first two verses of Psalm 24 really teach us or remind us about who God is, I also think they're really instructive for us because they they teach us, they remind us a little bit about who we are, right? Because if everything belongs to God, then that means everything does not belong to me. If everything is held together by God, that means that everything's not held together by me. As much as I like to think it is, the world is not held together by my actions, by my attitudes, by my abilities. We're reminded that we're not in control, despite the fact that if you're anything like me, you might act a lot of times as if you are. I'm not in control, and neither are you. Our lives belong to God. Psalm 100 puts it like this in verse 3. It says, Know that the Lord... He is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. God made everything and we belong to him. This then leads us into the next question that David asks. Essentially he's asking if that's who the king of glory is, then who can approach him? Who can approach the king of glory? Well, it might be kind of hard to uh, think about this in a week where we've experienced like negative 20 degree wind chills or something like that. Uh, but who here loves the beach? Any beach lovers? Anybody been lately? My family has a trip planned in a couple of months. Kind of wish it was like tomorrow, but uh, love going to the beach, love being warm. But there's this one time, I think I was in college, something like that, and I was at the beach and I forgot to wear sunscreen until it was kind of just too late. Ever happened to anybody? Yeah, yeah, just one of us apparently, yeah. Uh, now, to be fair, I've had my fair share of sunburns throughout the years. Pretty pale. Me and the sun don't really jive too well. But there was something different about this one. Andrew can relate to this because this happened to him as well. But there's this, it's not even really a level of sunburn anymore. This crazy thing happened. My skin reacted in a way unlike any other sunburn. Sun, sunburn. 
I had this endless, horrible itch. It felt like fire ants were like crawling inside of my body trying to attack me. I remember actually finding a couch at work and, uh, and just in a dark room with nobody around and laying and crying into a pillow. It was that unsufferable. I couldn't do anything at all to, to make it feel better, to relieve it. I didn't sleep, I think, for literally two or three days. I don't know if you're connecting with this, but it was absolutely crazy. wouldn't wish it upon anybody in the whole world. But I think looking back at that moment, I recognized something pretty important. The sun's a pretty powerful thing, right? I used to maybe think of myself as equally as, as powerful as the sun back in those days. I don't know. But what I learned is that the sun is this thing you don't really want to mess with, right? You don't approach the sun on your terms. You approach the sun on its terms, and normally I do so with a, like a swim shirt on and a whole bottle of sunscreen these days. But I think the holiness of God is a somewhat similar thing. And in verse 3, we see David ask an important question about how to approach God. Verse 3, he says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who in his holy place? Again, he's asking the question, who can approach God? Now, I mentioned earlier that we'd be talking a little bit later on about the context in which David is writing this psalm. And really, most scholars believe that this psalm uh, is written, uh, really, David is writing it, and it's tied to David relocating the ark in the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. If you're unfamiliar with the Ark of the Covenant, here's a sketch I found this week of kind of what it might have looked like. Uh, It was considered to be really important because it was the most holy possession in all of Israel because it symbolized the very presence of God with his people. So King David, he was early on in his reign as king of Israel, and he wanted to make Jerusalem the capital city. So he decided to move the ark into the city as a symbol of God's presence with the people. So he planned this whole big event. He had people line up the streets, kind of picture it like a big parade scene as the ark was being brought in to Jerusalem. Uh, But there was kind of a problem. See, there were really specific instructions that God had laid out about how to transport the ark, but David seemed to kind of miss the memo on that. See, instead, he had his men put the ark on an ox cart, and then as the cart was making its way toward the city, one of the oxen stumbled on something, kind of started to fall, and the cart started to tip, and the ark started to fall off of the cart, and so one of David's men, named Uzzah, reached out to grab the ark so that it wouldn't fall on the ground, but the second he touched the ark, he dropped dead instantly. Pretty crazy, isn't it? I think David kind of felt the same way. He was confused. He was angry. I'm pretty sure I would be at least confused and angry. So he decided to press pause on the whole operation. He wanted to leave the ark at a local man's house. The guy's name is Obed-Edom. I've always kind of wondered what that interaction would have been like, right? Like, hey man, this ark just killed a guy when he touched it. Do you mind if we left it at your house for a little bit? Uh, And he left it there for three months, which is just a crazy detail in the Bible. But it's during this time, I think, while the ark is left at Obed-Edom's house, that David realizes something. See, he had really good intentions. He wanted to make Jerusalem the center of Yahweh worship, but he kind of went about it his own way, right? And he realizes that that's not the way that you approach God. So David resets, eventually brings the ark into the city, this time uh, properly following the instructions from God. And there's a big celebration that ensues. You can read more about that in 2 Samuel chapter 6. But it's within all of that context that David asks the question that again we see in verse 3. He says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? 
Who's able to approach God? Who can stand before him in the midst of his holiness? I'm sure we've all heard God referred to before as holy, right? But I think usually in our culture, we connect this idea of holiness to like moral goodness, right? And so we believe that God is holy because we know that God is morally perfect. But if God is the creator of everything, if everything in the whole universe belongs to him, then I think the true meaning of holiness is a lot bigger than just moral behavior. If we go back and talk about the sun again for a second, we all know the sun is this this very unique thing, right? It's big, it's powerful, it's a source of life on earth. But what would happen if you jumped into a spaceship and you tried to fly as close to the sun as you possibly could? What would happen if you got really close to the sun? Yeah, it would destroy you, right? It would completely annihilate you because the same power that's in the sun that generates so much good, right? Light and life and warmth and all those things, that same power is also incredibly dangerous if you were to get too close to it. And there's really no perfect analogy for God's holiness, but it's kind of a similar idea. See, the holiness of God is a very, very good thing, but we see examples all throughout the Bible where the presence of God's holiness is actually a really dangerous thing. Just like we talked about with my man Uzzah. It's not because the holiness of God is bad, not by any stretch. But it's because the holiness of God is actually such an overwhelmingly, unexplainably good thing. So again, in light of all of this, David asks the question, who can approach a God who is so good? Who can approach a God, who can stand before a God who is so holy? And he answers the question by listing out some qualifications in verse 4. He says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. It's quite the list, isn't it? Let's break it down a little bit. I think the first thing we see here is a question of purity. David says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands here refers to a person's external actions, right? To somebody who always does the right thing and never does the wrong thing. And a pure heart, that really refers to the internal, to to your inward thoughts, to your inward intentions, your inward motives. And next we see David say, he who does not lift up his soul to what is false. I think this is really a question of worship. See, lifting up your soul to what is false refers to worshiping something other than God. I think in David's culture, and in that context, this would have very likely referred to the worship of all those other false pagan gods that we talked about earlier. But I think for us, it might look a little bit different, right? I think for us, it might look more like offering our worship to things like money, or work, family, grades, social media, maybe the Bears' new coach and general manager. And while all those things can be good, well, maybe not the bear's one, maybe that one's not a good one. While the rest of those things can be really good things, Jesus is really clear in the Gospel of Matthew. He tells us that no one can serve two masters. The last thing we see David list out here is a question of truth. He says, he who does not swear deceitfully. This is more than just telling a lie on occasion. This is really referring to being a person of truth. 
And not the kind of truth that's so popular in our culture that kind of ebbs and flows based on what you think or what you feel or what you see or what you hear, but it's focused on the absolute truth of a holy God. And these are the qualifications in order to, as David says in verse 5, receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And my guess is that we all kind of see and maybe even kind of feel that there's a problem here, isn't there? See, even in a culture that's so fixated on being a quote-unquote pretty good person, none of us measure up to those qualifications, right? None of us make the cut, and to be brutally honest, we're not even close. Psalm 14, verse 3 says it like this. It says, they've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And so who can approach the king of glory? Who can receive blessing and righteousness from the Lord? Who can ascend the hill and stand before a holy God? The answer is on our own. None of us can, right? None of us qualify. But there is one who does. See, Psalm 24, we believe, is the third of a mini-series of three psalms. Psalm 22, 3, and 4 that we call Messianic Psalms. Psalms that are really pointing us to the coming of Jesus. Because we know now, on this side of the cross, that only Jesus was able to live up to those standards, right? Only Jesus is qualified. Only Jesus was able to live a perfect life, but yet still in humility chose to die a sinner's death to atone for our sins and make us right before God the Father. Hebrews 9 says he, referring to Jesus, did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. But listen to verse 14. How much more then Well, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Because of this, right, because of what Jesus has done for you and for us on our behalf, we also read in Hebrews 4, That we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Verse 16, let us then approach. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. See, it's only through the blood of Jesus that we're able to receive the grace and the forgiveness to be made clean, to be given clean hands and pure hearts. It's only through the blood of Jesus that we're restored, that we're made new, which allows us then to approach and to serve, to have access to a holy God. This then leads us to the final question that David addresses in Psalm 24. The question is, how will the king of glory come? How will he come? Here's what David writes in the remainder of the psalm, verses 7 to 10. 
He says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Maybe you noticed here that the perspective and the question kind of begins to shift into these last few verses. You see, the question is no longer how can we approach God, but it shifts. And the question now is how will he approach us? Many scholars think that this back and forth is kind of a call and response moment between those who are outside the city gates of Jerusalem and those who are inside as the ark is being brought in to the city. But it's really just a declaration that the king of glory is entering in, that he wants to come in. It's also pointing us toward the day where Jesus will enter in as our king of glory. So how will the king of glory, how will Jesus come? Well, first we know from the gospels that he's already come. See, all four Gospels accounts uh, tell us the story of the triumphal entry, which we celebrate on Palm Sunday, right? That Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a young donkey to symbolize that he was coming as king. We also know that Jesus will come again. Revelation 21 tells us that someday Jesus will come back and the whole earth will be his dwelling place. And it's between those days between those days that we know that Jesus, the King of glory, still wants to enter into our hearts. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice open and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. See, the King of glory, Jesus, stands at the door of your heart, and he knocks. He wants to come into your life. He wants to come into your heart. I think it's important to, to mention that in Psalm 24, David only gives one imperative. He only gives one action step, one thing to do. We see it in verse 7. He says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. So what's our response? What is it that we should do? David's pretty clear. He says, lift up your head. You know, I think we live in the midst of a culture right now where our heads are down an awful lot. Whether it's literally in our cell phones or tablets or other devices, but I think also figuratively. We just live in this culture where so many of us are looking down Right? They were focused on ourselves. We're trying to maintain control of our lives. We're trying to kind of reign in our own little kingdoms. And frankly, it's a lot easier to look down. Right? It's at least a lot more comfortable. It feels a lot safer in a lot of ways. I experienced that earlier this week. I was shoveling a few days ago, and I, I tweaked my neck or my back muscles or something. I was having a hard time turning my head. really feel like I'm earning my dad pinstripes these days. Uh, but my wife, as smart and gracious as she is, just suggested that I lift my head up. She thought maybe it would help loosen some of the muscles. You know, just the same thing. You spend so much time looking down at your computer, down at your phone. And it was helpful. But I think it, it not only helped my muscles, although they are feeling a little bit better now, but it was, 
helpful for me, really, as I spent time in, in Psalm 24 this week. That idea really helped to, to shift the perspective of, of my heart in a lot of ways. I think it's no surprise to any of us that we've been through a lot of hard things lately. Whether it's just the last two years in the world and everything that has kind of turned upside down. Or even more specifically, in these last two weeks, as we continue to, just to hear difficult news and, uh, and just trying circumstances. Things that seem incomprehensible uh, to so many members of our church family. I think, for me, it's in, it's in moments like these where, where questions really start to kind of swirl around my head, right? Where, where doubt really begins to creep in to my heart. And in the midst of all of that, David's encouragement is to look up. To look up. Psalm 121 says to look to the hills from that, for that's where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord. In the midst of all of the difficulty and challenges in the world around us, the encouragement is to look up, to look to Jesus, to look to the King of glory because he wants to come in to your life. He wants to come in to your heart. Why? It's not because you've earned it, right? It's not because any of us deserve it. It's not because we're clean. It's not because we're pure, but it's because he is. It's because he is good. It's because he is holy. Because he is able, he is righteous, it's because he loves you. It's because he is the king. Next week, we dive right back into the gospel of Mark. If you've been with us uh, since the beginning of the fall, you know that we've been spending the better part of the year studying Mark in a sermon series called Following the King. And uh, as we prepare to continue that journey uh, together beginning next week, really my hope and my prayer for us is that we would be a people, that we'd be a church, that we'd be individuals who, who know, who trust, who believe, who remember that the King of glory wants to come into our hearts. He wants to take up residence in our lives. Again, not because we've earned it, but because he loves us, because he is good, because he is the King. And all we need to do Psalm 24 tells us, is to lift up our heads. All you need to do is lift up your head and let him in. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you this morning. God, just so in awe of who you are. Jesus, that you are the king of glory. God, that you are good, holy, and righteous. God, that you came to earth on our behalf. God, that you reconciled us for our sins so that we could approach God and have access to him. God, you paid a debt that we never could have paid. Jesus, we love you and we just pray that we'd continue to be able to lift our eyes to you. God, knowing that you and you alone is where our help comes from. Jesus, will you give us the courage to trust you and to follow you, even in the midst of hard times. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.